Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. All right. So I'm sure that uh, many, if not all of you, are here tonight, at least in part because you love the work of David Foster Wallace. The store has been a longtime advocate of Wallace's books, and at one point we were told by the publisher that we'd sold more copies of Infinite Jest than anyone else, um, which is a lot. Uh, his death in 2008 hit us hard, as it hit all of his fans hard. Thousands of passionate readers were confronted by the fact that we didn't know the man nearly as well as we thought we did, which is to say nearly as well as we knew his writing. So it's with great joy that I can present to you tonight DT Max, who has written as excellent and thoughtful a biography as we could have hoped for. With the cooperation of those closest to Wallace and a thoughtful and careful reading of his published fiction and nonfiction, his letters and other papers, Max has drawn a portrait that brings fans of Wallace's writing one step closer to understanding the mind that created it. As Dave Egger said, we should feel grateful that this story was told by someone as talented and responsible as D.T. Max. Please help me give him a warm welcome, D.T. Max. Thank you very much, and, and uh, thank you to Skylight Books, which is a wonderful bookstore I hadn't been to before. Um, you know, I'm going to read you a couple of sections from the book. I'm not a huge fan of readings where people actually read unless they're novelists. Um, but I chose a couple of sections, you know, that show one thing I very much want to kind of underscore in, in talking about David, which is um, just his incredible ability to his sort of his, his ability to sort of bounce back. Um, I don't know how many of you know sort of the basic facts of, of David's life. I suspect many of you know at least some of them. Um, but uh, you know, David is born in the Midwest, and he has a fairly um, I wouldn't say conventional childhood, but sort of a, a kind of conventional plus childhood. Uh, sort of a hothouse child of uh, intense academic parents. Um, and fairly early in his life, he begins to experience, you know, kind of a, an unusual and acute anxiety. Uh, but he manages to go to college, goes to Amherst, uh, and amazingly, you know, gets straight A's, A pluses. I mean, best, I think he, I remember part of the work of the biography, you know, biographies go on a number of sort of tracks at once. And one thing you want to do is try and get your facts right. So. 
the question was how many awards had David won at Amherst? I didn't even know, you know, I mean, I went to college, I didn't know there were awards. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I thought you were, um, you know, it was good if you graduated. And I mean, I knew there, was, there were magnas and summas, but I didn't know that there were like named awards. So David wins 10. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what he, what he wins. And, and what's really kind of amazing is he wins them despite being under, you know, fairly intense, uh, you know, mental pressure. He actually has two breakdowns while he's at Amherst. Um, and yet somehow he comes out of there with 10 awards, uh, a double summa, and one of his uh, theses is a 500-page novel called The Broom of the System, which is published. All right, so there's a guy who, you know, really, despite everything, can achieve, even in the face of, I think, intense, intense, intense difficulty. So David continues on this sort of double track, and he uh, publishes a story collection called Girl with Curious Hair, and he's stunned because his standards are so high that this story collection is, no, nobody buys it. I think, I think one of the really unkind facts that I was sorry to find out about David was that Girl with Curious Hair sells 2,200 copies in hardcover, which, I mean, you could, you could put them in two stacks. I mean, it's just, it's a devastating for somebody like David who had achieved so much on his first book. So David, um, you know, through all this time is battling a couple of addictions. I mean, he's, he's, he's addicted to marijuana and really has been since um, high school. To some extent, he's taking marijuana because it's just, you know, because it makes him high and happy. And to some extent, he's thinking because he's self-medicating. Uh, and so he goes into a... Um, he basically, he decides, and this is very, I think, David Foster Wallace, he decides, I don't want to be a writer anymore. It's just too hard to live alone. He's had a breakdown, another breakdown. He's actually uh, attempted to commit suicide um, with some sleeping pills. He decides, oh, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school. Ooh, not a great idea. But he's been looking around for models. And one of the very touching things about David, I think, is that even though he was certainly as brilliant a person as any of us will ever know, he was not above looking for rather simple models. I mean, he has a very touching correspondence throughout the book with Don DeLillo. Uh, you know, these are letters where he'll write to Don DeLillo and say, you know, I'm, I don't know why I'm writing anymore and I can't find what I want to write. And Delilah must have been scratching his head that there's this, you know, absolutely brilliant guy, 20 years younger than him, who's acting as if he's never, you know, never gotten a book out. I mean, who's, who hasn't achieved anything. So that's part of David's strange disposition. So he looks around and he finds that there is uh, a writer he's always admired named William Gass uh, at um, Brown. No, I'm sorry, Washington University. Uh, and um, he decides he's going to be the next William Gass. So he's going to be a philosopher who has a sideline in f fiction, but being and David, he has to go to Harvard, or better. So he actually gets into the Harvard philosophy program. By now he's 28. I don't know if any of you have ever gone back to, to um, graduate school. Very difficult to go back. All right, so would you, you took time off and then went to graduate school? I don't know how you do it. Because when I thought about that and I went and actually looked at graduate schools, I thought I can never be that person again. And that's what David discovers. He just can't do the reading. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a polymath. He's got six pieces for six different magazines. He's writing a novel on pornography that never, turned, never will actually be finished. Anyway, he lasts three weeks at Harvard. Uh, and then basically arranges, you know, one of the things that, that I had not known, I, all this began as an article in the New Yorker shortly after David's death. One of the things I hadn't known is what I think David arranged on purpose 
to be forced to go to McLean, the psychiatric hospital, um, he knew enough about the system that he knew if he said he was th thinking of committing suicide, it would force Harvard to send him to a psychiatric facility. I don't actually think he was particularly thinking of committing suicide at this point. But it's, it sort of it activates a protocol, and David winds up at um, McLean Psychiatric Institute. And being David Foster Wallace, you know, the little piece of him is sort of proud that he's at the Harvard of Psychiatric Institutes. <laughs> and it's touching again because, you know, for me, like, David didn't really need these stamps on his passport. I mean, nobody needed a stamp on their passport less than David. But he was a child in some ways of, you know, conventional academic parents. And Harvard was, for them, always something they could, you know, talk about. So, I mean, I don't really imagine that his parents went around saying, you know, our son's at the Harvard of Psychiatric Institutes. But but if you, had to, if you had to go and be detoxed, that's the place you wanted to go. David always wanted to get A pluses. Um, <laughs> after spending a month at McLean, he's then sent to a halfway house. And here's where things really get interesting. Anyone who's read Infinite Jest knows that half of it's set in a halfway house. One of the, you don't answer everything. You don't answer all, all the things you want to know in a biography. And I do not know why David chose the real-life version of uh, of Annette House, which is called Granada House, which was a pretty rough, a pretty rough halfway house in a pretty rough part of um, of Brighton, Massachusetts. I've never know why he didn't go somewhere. You know, I mean, he could have gone anywhere. He had insurance from Harvard, but anyway, my suspicion is he went there for the material, but I don't know that for sure. Um, so the first part I'm going to read you is David, sort of believing he can never write again and trying to find his footing in the incredibly bizarre environment of Granada House. So at this point, David is, it's 1989, so David is 27. But he seems much older. Granada House was on the grounds of the Brighton Marine Hospital near the Massachusetts Turnpike. Wallace found it funny that a marine hospital should be nowhere near water. The compound consisted of seven buildings, seven moons orbiting a dead planet, as he describes it in Infinite Chest, all leased to various substance abuse and mental health assistance groups. Wallace met Deb Larson, the director. Tall and blonde, she walked with a limp. Drunk, she had fallen down in her kitchen, hitting her head, causing a partial paralysis. Even then, she hadn't stopped drinking. Wallace liked and respected her immediately. She was personable and smart, and gave him a link to an old life that was still his present. You could almost see Harvard from the top floor of the building. Recovery facilities tried to control the stress of their participants, and one activity that they usually prohibited was school. Wallace then had no choice but to call the philosophy department at Harvard and ask for a leave of absence. He was too humiliated to go back to get the vegetable juicer that had been a gift from his mother. As a new arrival, Wallace was not allowed out of the building on his own for the first 10 days, and for the next 20, he could go out only to substance abuse meetings. Then he was expected to find low-level work. Wallace, whose only real skill was teaching and writing, cast around and was able, probably thanks to the presence on his resume of the head of Amherst College Security, to get hired as a guard at Lotus, the large software company. I don't know if anyone remembers Lotus. Anyone use Lotus? Yeah, Lotus. It's a little bit like talking about, I don't know, ESSO or something at this point. But Lotus at the time was a massive force, you know, and they were the, sort of the Microsoft of their, of their day before Microsoft completely knocked them out of the box. 
Granada House rules stipulated a 40-hour work week, so Wallace got up at 4.30 in the morning to take the Green Line and worked until 2 p.m., walking a vast disc packaging plant in Lechmere, clocking in his whereabouts every 10 minutes and twirling his baton, or so he later said. My personal opinion on this one, one of the things that was sort of interesting and difficult about this work, about researching every love story, is that David was a constant liar and inventor, and, 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 and um, I don't actually think he did go around twirling a baton, because there's also a letter that somebody gave me where he says that he sat there looking at a video monitor, um, you know, with one of those monitors that shows you all the excerpts from a facility, and I, that seems to me actually more likely. David wrote a story early in his life that's never been collected, which is about a guy walking around a vast warehouse twirling his baton, and I am sure he just took his story, you know, he just took that one and put it back into his life. <laughs> He would tear pages out of his notebook and send letters to his friends, maintaining contact with a small group of editors and writers who were vital to him. He tried to put a good face on what had happened. Give me a little time to get used to no recreational materials and wearing a polyester uniform and living with four tattooed ex-cons and I'll be right as rain, he wrote one of his editors shortly after starting. Even inside Granada House, he managed to attend to the business of being a writer. He followed up on submissions to magazines and read pages of stories he had coming out. He could see the humor of the situation. When the galleys of order and flux in Northampton arrived from conjunctions with a page missing, he told the magazine they could send it at their convenience. I'm not going anywhere for Christmas, he wrote. But in his heart, he was stunned by what had happened. I am, he wrote one of his college professors, okay, though very humiliated and confused. He was sharing a barracks-like room with four men, one of whom, he wrote his old 12-step sponsor, Rich C., had had a stroke while on cocaine and had a withered right arm. Mr. Howard, he told his book editor, everyone here has a tattoo or a criminal record or both. To another, he reported, most of the guys in the house are inmates on release, and while they're basically decent folk, it's just not a crowd I'm much at home with. Heavy metal music, black t-shirts and Harleys, vivid tattoos, discussion of hard verse, soft time, parole boards, gunshot wounds, and Walpole, Massachusetts' toughest prison. Wallace continued at his security job for more than two months, and then, unable to bear getting up so early, he quit. He went to work as a front desk attendant at the Mount Auburn Club, a health club in Watertown. His job was to check the members in. He called himself a glorified towel boy. But one day, Michael Ryan, a poet who had received a Whiting Award alongside Wallace two years before, came to exercise. Wallace dove below the reception desk and quit that day. Wallace's friends were accustomed to his exaggerations and inventions over the years. That came with his clownish, hyperbolic persona. But when they visited him at the halfway house, they found that what he said this time was actually true. He had stepped through the looking glass. His friend Deborah Spark, a fiction writer, remembers sitting in on a group therapy session with Wallace one day and being amazed to hear someone recount killing someone while drunk. All the same, Wallace found his place. Order, no matter how far in the context, was always easier for him than the unstructured world outside. He met with a counselor, and nearly every evening he drove to different parts of the city with other Granada House members for substance abuse meetings. That's all very memorably in Infinite Jest for those who've, who've read it, the sort of car rides and the showing up in suburbs with, where there are different uh, AA groups, you know, and different kind of personalities to encounter. Um, his sponsor was named Jimmy, a motorhead from the South Shore, as he called him in a letter to a friend. Wallace read the big book and enjoyed making fun of its cheesy 1930s ad man vocabulary to his friends. Tosspot, Dave Sheen heels, boiled as an owl. 
He laughed at them, but he also knew he needed them or he would die, Mark Costello, his college roommate, remembers. If Wallace found himself in unfamiliar territory, the residents of Granada House didn't know what to make of him either. One remembers wondering, this guy can go probably to Petty Ford. Why is he here with us welfare babies? No one really cared for his cleverness either. He was to them a type they'd seen many times before. Someone who tries to, as he would later put it in infinite jest, erect denial-type fortifications with some kind of intellectualist showing off. Wallace was back in high school trying to figure out his place in the pack. One of the moments early in the book that I found incredibly memorable, maybe for my own personal reasons, is in junior high, Wallace who, who sasses the wrong couple of kids and they, and they hang him up from a, from a hook in the bathroom. He gets a world-class wedgie. Uh, and if you, any of you read Pale King with more attention than maybe is necessary, you'll find that wedgie is in there. So David never forgot that one. Um, it's a rough crowd, he wrote to his old Arizona sponsor, and sometimes I'm scared or feel superior or both. Yet a piece of him was beginning to adjust to the new situation. He remembered his last failed attempt to get sober and how he was no longer writing and asked himself what he had to lose. He came to understand that the key this time was modesty. He knew it was imperative to abandon the sense of himself as the smartest person in the room, a person too smart to be like one of the people in the room because he was in fact one of the people in the room. I try hard to listen and do what they say, he wrote his old sponsor, Rich C. I'm trying to do it easy this time, not get an A+. I just don't have enough gas right now to do anything fast or well. I'm trying to accept this. Not that things came easily. The simple aphorisms of the program seemed ridiculous to him. And if he objected to them, someone inevitably told him to do what was in front of him to do, driving him even crazier. He was astonished to find people talking about a, quote, higher power, without any evidence beyond their wish that there were one. They got down on their knees and said the thankfulness prayer. Wallace tried once at Granada House, he told Costello, but it felt hypocritical. All the same, Wallace liked to quote one of the veteran recovery members, the group known in Infinite Jest as the Crocodiles, who told him, it's not about whether or not you believe, asshole. It's about getting down and asking. There were many times when he was sure he would start drinking again. I'm scared, he wrote his sponsor. I still don't know what's going to happen. He asked his friend for some words of encouragement, and just when he thought he would give up, a letter arrived at Granada House in which his former sponsor recounted the last time he had been in detox. They gave me Librium, he wrote, and I threw them over my left shoulder for luck, and I've had good luck ever since. <laughs> the image Wallace told his sponsor years later was just the, quote, good MFA caliber trope he'd needed. Stunned as he was, he understood from the beginning that his fall from grace was a literary opportunity. He'd been writing before about a nation enthralled to its appetites, and here he was living among its casualties. So in the midst of his misery, he was alive to the new information that he was getting. The communal house, he would later write in Infinite Jest, reeks of passing time. It is the humidity of early sobriety, hanging and palpable. Wallace was known for sitting quietly, listening as residents talked for hours about their lives and their addictions. Later, the residents would often be surprised to find that though he had heard their stories, they had not in fact heard his. The explanations people gave for their behavior startled Wallace with their simplicity, but their voices, which were always Wallace's way into composition, were unforgettable, and their stories had a clarity that his lacked. This was the sort of access to interior lives a novelist could not get elsewhere. You know, when I think about... Uh, Wallace sitting in Granada House with this, you know, sort of taking it all in. I'm always reminded of, it's, I think it was Vladimir Nabokov who, when he was writing Lolita, 
You don't realize how isolated you are, how atomized your world is, and how hard it is to overhear people unlike yourself. But if I remember right, Nabokov used to crouch in the back of a school bus in order to scribble down the way that school kids talk. You know, the, the, like he couldn't, you know, he couldn't, anytime he was seen to observe it, he'd change it, right? I mean, that's the basic Heisenberg principle of, of both journalism and fiction. So here, David is really one of them. And as a result, he gets an, an access to a kind of conversation. I mean, you see this in Infinite Jest, to a world that he's not affecting by his presence. He was finding, as he, as he later told an interviewer, that, quote, nobody is as gregarious as someone who has recently stopped using drugs. Wallace and his notebooks were a familiar sight, trapping little inspirations before they could get away. Within a few months of arriving, Wallace had already drafted a scene centered on one of the most intriguing residents at Granada House, Big Craig. Big Craig, known as Don Gately in the novel, was one of the Granada House supervisors and sometimes the house cook. There's a wonderful description, Infinite Dress, just if you haven't read it or don't remember it, of Don Gately putting out the, the meal and sort of being so proud of these sort of, you know, dreadfully overcooked noodles. Um, he didn't trust Wallace when he first met him. My suspicions were that he was just looking for material for a book, he remembers. Craig was in his mid-twenties sober and just huge, as Wallace would later write in Infinite Jest, looking less built than poured, with the smooth immovability of an Easter Island statue. He'd grown up on the North Shore and been a burglar and Demerol addict. Friends closed elevator doors on his head for fun when he was a teenager, a detail Wallace would of course put into Infinite Jest too. But he turned out not only to come from a different world, but also to be quite sensitive. And it did not take Wallace long to see the possibilities in a lug with an interior life. There was a sort of Dostoevsky and gloss to him, the redeemed criminal, and Dostoevsky was on Wallace's mind all the time. He wrote to one of his old Amherst professors shortly after arriving that going from Harvard to here was like House of the Dead with my weeks in drug treatment composing the staged execution and last-minute reprieve from same. The reprieve, he hoped, would spur the same creative surge it had in the Russian. So that's, uh, you know, kind of a remarkable story about how quickly Wallace, who's certainly been knocked, you know, on his ass in an amazing way. I mean, this is a kid who's, who's you know, got his 10 academic awards, written two uh, important works, spent all of three weeks as a, you know, the philosophy department at Harvard was really like being, you know, pre-med. I mean, it was an incredibly selective process. Um, you know, so the humiliations that he'd overcome was just extraordinary. Um, as everybody knows probably who's, who's come to this reading, um, his time in Granada House produces Infinite Jest, um, his extraordinary 1996 novel, which is partially about a barely fictionalized uh, Granada House. And one of the things I came to realize about when writing about David was there's a difference in, in writing between in inventiveness and creativity. I mean, the creativity that David brings to Infinite Jest is just astonishing. I mean, it, that's why it's the important novel it is. But he wasn't all that inventive. I mean, at least not in that half. When David found things that were pretty good, he used them. I mean, it was a huge issue with all his friends. There are letters I have where he basically warns people, you know, hey, if you write anything good, I'm going to steal it. Uh, and he did. You know, there's a wonderful story, a friend of his from, he, he, uh, after Broom of the System, he, he, and when he's writing Girl with Curious Hair, 
he's at a graduate program in Arizona, and there's an absolutely beautiful story that David wrote and never appreciated called Forever Overhead. Remember, that's the one where the 13-year-old's on the edge of the diving board, and is he going to dive in or not dive in? And it's just an incredible story, which in part, I think, is really about fiction, whether David's going to become a writer or not be a writer. Um, but in there, there's an absolutely lovely detail um, in which the character talks about um, having a baby, uh, the, you know, about the protagonist having a baby um, a baby sister, I think, and only kissing the baby sister on her toes because he's recently had the mumps and he's afraid he's going to give it to her. And in fact, that had been his one of his friend's stories. who was also an MFA student. You know, so uh, it seems a little unfair. It reminds me of another story. Years ago, I remember hearing this, that Raymond Carver and I think Richard Ford and a couple of other people we're driving, this is just about how hard it is to find something to write about. We're driving in a car somewhere, and this huge falcon or eagle or something just dropped dead on the hood of the car, like just fell like a ton of bricks and dropped on the hood of the car. And one of them turns to the other and says, whose is this? <laughs> <laughs> so David gets his material. He gets this, this you know, I don't want to say that he wasn't in pain. He was in pain at Granada House, but the, the strength of David is he's both in pain and he's always collecting, collecting, collecting. Um, and, you know, one of the things that astonished me working on the biography is, like, how quickly he set to work. In my mind, when I wrote the New Yorker piece, like, David, even David at, at Granada House was, you know, basically, you know, suffering from the DTs and barely able to, to write and think, and there's some truth to that. I mean, there are letters where David basically says, I'm so, I'm so fucked up, I, can't, I don't even know what I like to read, let alone what I like to write. And yet, at the same time, these pages are pretty soon coming out, and a lot of them. So it's a strange kind of, you know, a strange dichotomy. We have a train over there? <laughs> if there's a train, that's fine. Um, so now we're going we're gonna to zip along, uh, much as David would probably have liked us to zip along, and ignore the successful period when Infinite just comes out. David is the toast of the literary world, a moment he both loves and hates with all his crooked heart. Um, and um, he winds up shortly thereafter in Bloomington, uh, Illinois, where he spends eight years that are marked both by intense sort of productivity, but a kind of nagging and insistent dislike of his own work and his own situation. Um, uh, and also, uh, and I should say this carefully because one of the absolute terrific women whom he dated is actually in the audience, uh, but a series of relationships that are not satisfying, um, at least to him. He, he, he writes in a letter of, of serial um, uh, high-intensity, low-intimacy low relationships. So we're going to take you to Pomona. In 2002, he gets an, a, what he calls in a letter to Dave, in an interview with Dave Edgars, a lottery-style gig at Pomona. Basically, he's, you know, David's always looking well, what writer isn't for an easy way to make a living? And, you know, he realizes that the more he teaches, the less he writes. It's an equation he never gets away from, but just as in this Granada House section, he really doesn't have any skills. I mean, David is, you know, one of the things you have to understand about David is he really is a product of middle-class academic life, and he's always straining against this. There's a moment early on in the book where he tells a friend of his, um, you know, and all of Dave's most interesting friends were his pot connections. I mean, any time in this book, Somebody's described as either interesting or raffish or, uh, you know, someone who gives him a peek at another world, like, you can bet that they were getting high together. Um, <laughs> and probably this was how he found the pot in whatever town he was in. Uh, but anyway, so Dave goes to Pomona 
um, and he meets um, you know the woman he's going to marry uh, Karen Green so I'm going to read you that, that part sorry I'm about to lose this piece of paper In midsummer 2002, Wallace left Bloomington, Illinois in the Volvo he'd bought with the last of his MacArthur money, his dogs Werner and Jeeves in the back. So by the time Dave is now, he's now kind of a monstrous soccer. He's like, you know, he's an established literary figure. He's got these two enormous, fearsome dogs that telegraph to everybody just what, just how much intimacy he wants, you know. Uh, and he's and he's one in MacArthur, you know, and it's killed him because for him, it's all about, you know, the only, David. David wrongly considers himself the laziest man on the planet. Uh, and he feels if you give him money for nothing, he'll do nothing. And the MacArthur was given to him for nothing. Uh, and there's a piece of paper in the Ransom Center archives where he says, genius, I'm, I don't feel like a genius. Uh, you know, he, it was in some ways the worst thing that could have happened to him. The, the, the only thing that sort of kept him writing on one level was the fact that, you know, he knew he needed to produce to have self-esteem and also to get these occasional checks from his publisher. Um, so he loses, he spends his MacArthur money as fast as he can. He, he, it's really, it's just guilt money. I mean, he basically is throwing it away. But anyway, what he does with part of it, he buys a Volvo. Um, when, he and a he, when he and a friend got to Claremont, Bleary-eyed and anxious, they drove up and down the streets. The mission-style strip malls astonished Wallace. He wondered, as he always did, when faced with something new, if he had made a terrible mistake. But there was posturing in this homesickness. In reality, Wallace's sense of being uprooted passed quickly. The house Pomona College had arranged for him was pretty on the main street and near the campus. It was fenced all in with lemon trees in the back and a giant palm tree that Wallace happily measured to be 11 and a half feet around. It, there's an enormous, enormous, wonderful palm tree in the back of that house. The first few days brought several visitors. One was Karen Green. When Wallace was still in Bloomington, Green, a visual artist, had asked him for permission to turn his story, The Depressed Person, into a grid of illustrated panels. Now she brought the finished artwork, along with a housewarming gift of Ikea ice trays. The story, Wallace's act of anger against the writer Elizabeth Wurzel, ends without hope. Green had reimagined the story, though, so that in the last panel of her painting, the depressed person is cured. When Wallace saw what Green had done, he was pleased. He told her that she had turned it into a story that people would actually want to read. That day in Claremont, he offered to make lunch for her. There were lamps scattered everywhere. She counted 14, and towels stretched out to dry on the furniture. The place looked to Green, she remembered, like an office with a laundry. His fridge turned out to contain only hot dogs and goldfish crackers. When Green asked if Wallace had mustard, he told her, I'm not that into condiments. They went to a park, and Warner jumped on her and tore out her belly button ring. <laughs> she came back a few weeks later, though, the day before her birthday with a mutual friend, and Wallace prepared her hot dogs and put them in the frilly paper cuffs that usually attire lamb chops. On the car ride west, Wallace had invited his then-girlfriend and her daughter to move in with him, but soon he called her in Illinois and said he wanted to end their contact. And when Karen Green's own marriage ended in November, Wallace offered to help. I'll be your hideous man expert, he said, expecting that they were going to begin a relationship and determined to start on an honest footing this time. He wrote her a series of letters, which he called Grim Letter 1, Grim Letter 2, Grim Letter 3, and so on where he laid out his psychiatric history and his history with women. 
is my, my favorite part. I don't want to be Satan, he explained. She drew a picture of Satan on him with a sharpie, and at his insistence added the words, but I mean well. <laughs> very, very brief interviews. Soon Green invited him to spend Christmas with her in Hawaii. He was sad. Jeeves' first dog had just died. The closest thing to a child that, he, that I had, he wrote a friend. To make sure they could get along when they got there, he had first visited her for a day in Marin County, where she lived. They had fun, and he amazed her afterward by writing a letter describing every detail of her house, down to the paint-splattered shoes in the hallway. He told her the depressed person was, in fact, him. Wallace wanted to go slow, so to encourage him in Hawaii, Green sent him a bedsheet with a hole already cut out. In December they left, surprising Wallace's friends who knew how little he liked to travel. In Hawaii they watched movies and walked on the beach and talked constantly. Green swam while Wallace avoided the water. He was afraid of sharks. He liked that there were no bugs though. He had a kind of a phobia about bugs. Before they returned home he asked Green if she would marry him. I mean, and, and those who've read the biography by now, this, this is supposed to sort of elicit a groan because, you know, he, he had this quality of asking women to marry him before he could fall out of love with them. So you're sort of thinking, oh no. But Green had a teenage son, Sterling, who danced, and she wanted to be near a good ballet program. On his return, Wallace told a friend that he was pretty much hopelessly in love. Wallace settled into Claremont. He found a recovery group he liked, and touched by California culture, drank his protein drink, breakfast vomit, he called it, lifted weights, ran with Werner, and even bought a new tennis racket. He festooned his walls with shark attack clippings and pages of The Long Thing, which is what he called The Pale King, the novel he'd been working on for a decade already. When school began, he found he liked teaching at Pomona more than he'd expected. For one thing, there were no graduate students, and thus no budding literary theorists, and the undergraduates, the undergraduates were more capable than at Illinois State. He was in the land of 1600 SAT scores, apparently, as he described Pomona to an editor friend, Brad Morrow. He found Rena Fraden, the department head, exactly how he hoped she'd be. They soon had a standing date to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer every Tuesday night at her house. As ever, Wallace tried to tamp down any sense that he was special. When the students in his fiction class had a dress-like-DFW day, he let it be known that it was only sort of funny. Best of all, Best of all, he only had to teach one course each semester and never had to sit on a committee. Anyone who, who, who teaches will know the, the incredible relief of not having to sit on a committee. Any grumblings among the faculty for whom undergraduate education was a calling were soon laid to rest as word of Wallace's unmistakable dedication to teaching emerged. For example, the 11 impromptu mini-papers that he required from students in literary interpretation, or the comments in different colored inks for each reading that he scrawled in the margins of students' stories. He took teaching, he took teaching seriously and made sure his students did so too. His grammar obsession quickly, quickly became well known. On a scale of one to 10, this is an 11, he would tell students seeing a particular blunder, or this actually hurts my brain. He would consult his mother's grammar book, Practically Painless English, which it's, it's a very funny, it's a, a book Sally Wallace wrote that actually sounds, the sentences and the examples of good and bad grammar actually sound like they're from Infinite Jest. Um, in order to answer any challenges, and would sometimes trot out her old trick of fake coughing when a student fell into a grammatical error. <coughs> and then, you know, the student was, oh, I didn't mean nauseous, I meant nauseated. And then, you know, David would be thrilled as if, you know, something immensely important had been discovered. <laughs> he used the modifier only 
in class to show the power careful usage could wield. You have been entrusted to feed your neighbor's dog for a week while he, the neighbor, is out of town. The neighbor returns home. Something has gone awry. You are questioned. I fed the dog. Did you feed the parakeet? I fed only the dog. Did anyone else feed the dog? Only I fed the dog. Did you fondle, molest the dog? I only fed the dog. Wallace's voice would crackle with pleasure as he spoke the last line. Thank you. Thank you. So whoever's running the train, tell me, we have time for some questions? Okay, so I'm up for any questions as long as it's kind. Yes? When you talk about the period when he was in the halfway house and he was struggling with the writing, did he actually keep a notebook and pages? Was he working on a computer? How did he work on the material that while he was actually in the house? And what did you... What were your sources? Were you able to go and find all of his papers, his notes, and stuff? I think that, his, that most of his notebooks have probably disappeared forever. Um, but um, some of the drafts that he was working on um, exist still at the, at the Ransom Center. You know, he, he liked like kind of these spiral-bound notebooks. And the dumber the, the cover, the better for him. So you know, he had a Care Bears notebook at one point in his life. I think he had one, what's that little unicorn? What's the name of that unicorn from that children's animated series? You know, the one with the, no, no one, no one has a small daughter. Anyway, My Little Unicorn, is that right? My Little Pony, sorry, right. I guess not a, not a unicorn at all. Uh, anyway, so, and, and, you know, so he would, he would keep these notes. But, you know, the whole question of how David composed is really an interesting one because in all the work that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of David's drafts, and God knows I have a lot of his letters that people gave me. I mean, I'm, I'm the world's foremost, you know, possessor of David Foster Wallace correspondence. Um, on the second floor of my house in, in Montclair, New Jersey. I have never seen a really bad draft from David. So, I mean, a really beginning draft. In other words, one where like half of it's crossed out and every sentence has to be reworked, basically the way my drafts look. So there's two possibilities. Either David never wrote that way because it just came out so smooth, or maybe he spent a lot of time cogitating on it. You know, he wrote by longhand, which is, was unusual even, you know, I mean, even when we were talking about in the late, 80s, 90s, you know, very, uh, everyone has used a typewriter for decades, and then a lot of people are already using word processors. But I've never seen a really miserable start. So the other possibility is he tore them up and threw them out. Um, and I actually don't know the answer to that. You'd think one would have surfaced by now. I mean, you know, a lot, as I say, a lot of the drafts that his wife possessed are now at the Ransom Center in Texas, and then his parents gave a lot of material that they also had, although it's earlier material. So I don't really know the answer whether, you know, my suspicion based on his little tiny forward leaning little handwriting is that he thought about these things really hard and then he wrote them and as a result they were a lot cleaner and clearer and he had that big brain that could sort of, you know, see six steps ahead and I think that probably um, helped him. I mean, I have letters where he talks about things going straight into the wastebasket. I'm not sure I've ever entirely believed that. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned Buddhism in the biography, I think it was a girlfriend, or I forget who introduced you to him. Um, I'm just curious if you have any more information on how Buddhism affected him, because it's just really interesting 
interesting to me how Buddhism has permeated Western thought. I mean, it's a terrific question, and I, th I don't think the answer is really all that clear. I know that at, at his memorial service in New York, a, a Buddhist pr priest, if that's the term, in full robes, was among the people seated in the kind of reserve section. And I never knew who that person was. I mean, what I know about David is that fairly early after finishing Infinite Jest, he starts on The Pale King, much, much earlier than I had ever known before. I mean, I basically, it's, he starts on it immediately after finishing Infinite Jest. And during part of this process, he's begun doing, you know, kind of meditational sitting. Um, and I don't know who turns him on to it, but on the other hand, it would sort of be surprising if he, someone hadn't suggested. I mean, you're talking about somebody with this massively unquiet mind, who's, you know, not really finding in conventional Western, um, you know, religion any sort of release. I mean, one thing that he, that he said in a letter that I saw is that it was impossible for him to think about um, God for more than a few minutes a year. I think he's, he's sort of quoting, paraphrasing Bertrand Russell and another he says he couldn't go to church without getting the giggles. So what's left for a person in this position? Somebody you know whose whole battle is to achieve a kind of mindfulness and so he begins with this sitting and I think sort of typically for David he wants to be the best possible meditational sitter. And so in the book, there's an exchange of letters he has, an absolutely wonderful exchange he has with a, with a, with a man who was then a practicing Buddhist named Christopher Hammaker. We keep saying, like, you know, what's the best kind of sitting? You know, should I be on a bench? Does that count? If it doesn't hurt, does that count? Is pain the point of the thing? You know, and then he sends him a list of, like, Buddhist people have written on Buddhism and says, like, you know, should I, should I read all these writers? And the guy writes back and says, you know, I don't really think you need to read any of them. I've never heard of them. <laughs> you know, and you don't have to do it every day until it hurts. Like, just do it. Just do it a little bit. Theologically, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I think if you look at the story, uh, Good Old Neon, which is a story, a very sad story in which there's a sort of a, a man, something of a Wallace Stanton, who's driving a car sort of quickly to his suicide uh, past the landscape that's sort of recognizable from Bloomington. You know, clearly there's something going on there about a kind of Buddhist sense of time. You know, a sense of time as an, apart as an apartness and sort of, you know, I mean, it's hard exactly to put your finger on it, but it, clearly it gets into his fiction uh, as well. And in fact, I think more in, in Good Old Neon than in The Pale King, which is more about I think almost a kind of Western style sense that if you can pass through boredom, you know, you can achieve some sort of clarity. Um, but I don't really know the first person. I, I suspect he's doing it very early. I suspect he, he's, he's sitting in when he's, you know, when basically soon after finishing Infinite Chest. Yeah. I just wanted to say it's very much. Thank you for writing it. Um, oh, thank you. To me, one of the saddest and most poignant moments is when you talk to Big Craig yeah yeah and he and he says the bastard was just looking for material yeah I mean it, it, no I mean one of the things that I kind of learned early on was that that all those things I read to you about Granada House are, are exaggerations. They're not complete exaggerations, but there were also people in Granada House who were, you know, somewhat more middle class. But those weren't really, I think, the people that interested David. And, and you know, and when you speak to Big Big Craig, the surprise you know, anyone who's read Infinite Jest sort of thinks of Don Gately is really almost kind of this. I don't know. I mean, almost inarticulate. Like this. This. That's the whole character to whom these amazing things happen. But actually, I mean, Big Craig, 
is a, is a pretty articulate guy who writes poetry. Um, and, you know, he, he is all the things David made him out to be, but he's also a very much more tender and considerate, and, and most of all, I think, um, he's, he's, he's much more articulate than, than you would have thought that he would be. Um, but I don't think David's really distorting the experience, because I, mean, I think there were a lot of tough guys there, too, and that was really what interested him. I mean, there's an absolutely wonderful picture I've seen of... of um, David fishing. You never think about this, but he, they had outings from Granada House. They weren't always stuck there, and they weren't always driving around to AA meetings. So he goes fishing with three of the guys from the house, and one of them is Big Craig. And, and this picture of Big Craig, you know, first of all, he's in a Harvard sweatshirt that pretty obviously, you know, his friend Dave, you know, bought for him, right? <laughs> he bought it for me. And then um, you also see that, that Wallace, who for most of us would seem to be a fairly big guy, is like, Tiny compared to the other three men who are fishing, and correspondingly, like they all have bigger fish than he has. Like you know, I mean, he looks like a little weenie, um, and I think that's a big part of actually his experience in the house was this sort of sense of being kind of physically uh, overmatched by them. I mean, one of the interesting things about the house too is that you know, it, a lot of the people didn't and don't survive, and so you know, many of those people aren't aren't alive now. Um, but in an earlier version of of those scenes, which appeared in the New Yorker, you know, the people were enough like themselves that that Mary Carr, who had also had a lot of, you know, the poet and memoirist, who'd also visited a lot of times and been, been seeing David during part of this time, you know, called David's editor and said, like, you can't run it this way. Um, remember, I was saying that David was creative without necessarily being that inventive, and when he saw a good story, he just he just took the thing. Uh, and so, in that sense, you know, I mean, it, some of it was changed for book publication, but still, I don't think a lot of those, many of those people, you know, probably could be found. I suspect the whole story of you know poor Tony, the and the heroin sting operation. Now those have got to be people that he either knew or more likely someone told him the story. You know, and I'm sure you know you can imagine. I mean. You can imagine how eager he was for material, how desperate for it. It was his big issue in this time of his life, you know, creatively, was what was he going to write about? He, he told a friend, um, I don't remember how he actually finished the story, but at Arizona he told a friend that his biography, which is funny for me, of course, that his, bi his biographer would write, you know, Dave sat in a room and took another puff on his cigarette <laughs> and said, who would want to read about that? Yeah. Uh, I really like your piece from the early 90s about the Carver rewrite. Oh, thank you. I'm just curious why uh, you didn't think Gordon Lish or even Carver would lend itself to like a book length thing. Or like why you were drawn specifically to for a book. I think after the Carver piece, no one would talk to me if I remember right. <laughs> so that may, have, that may have been the end of that. You know, I, I, I mean, David is special. David was remarkable. David has an energy to him that is like nothing that I've ever written about or read about. My big test, you know, about whether I'd made the right decision to do the biography or not was whether I'd still find reading David interesting after the three or four years it would take to do the book. And I mean, I just find that, that his words are just so alive. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about David, you know, and really is this phenomenon that's grown up since, partially since David's death, but not entirely. And for the people in the audience who actually knew David, and there are several, like, this has to seem like a real head-scratcher, you know, that this sort of larger-than-life St. Dave who has emerged. But I think in a kind of a way, that's also what drew me to, to uh, Wallace's, you know, all the questions he's asking are questions that I have always asked. You know, questions that I think you often find well delineated in the Kenyon College address, like, you know, 
how do we go through life? How do we manage to be more than like? I, there's a wonderful phrase in one of his essays about just being incredibly, incredibly clever little self. I forget the exact phrase, like you know, machines of self, you know, taking advantage, you know, maximizing the advantage for ourselves. How do we step out of that personality, which is so strongly dictated by our culture? Like, why, you know, what is faith? What I mean, for me, faith could never be, you know, like like you know, David. It's very hard for me to go into a church without getting the giggles. Um, you know, but also it's clear that when you write, and this is such an important part of David's life, you're not writing you're not writing for yourself. If you're writing for yourself, you're making a mistake. This is David's great point later in life. You have to be writing for other people. Well, here is an opportunity. I won't say that the book is meant to instruct. It's not really my style, but this thing, if it, if it works, if every love story is a ghost story works for you, it's also got to challenge you in some way about your own life. You know, really in some way refracting what David was doing in, in his own work. You know, if it gives you too pat an answer, it's too much what it appears to be a biography of a, a guy who died four years ago. Then I then I haven't succeeded at what I'm trying to do both for myself and for you as the reader. I think there was one more hand. Is it? Did I answer that question by accident? <laughs> um, okay. So. No. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.